Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learnt to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! Hello, Trent. How are you? Hey, Bram. How are you, mate? Dr. Barry Schwartz, where does today's podcast find you? I am in Oakland, California, across the bay from San Francisco. I moved here a few years ago uh, after having spent my entire life on the East Coast of the U.S., growing up in New York City and then teaching uh, outside of Philadelphia until I retired to become a babysitter for my grandchildren. We all need one of those. I I have a saying, and I didn't realize that my saying would lead us to you. Quite often, in fact, I'll set the scene. I was walking home a couple of years ago. It was raining, and I was making an Instagram video trying to promote the podcast, and, and I was thinking about concepts. And I thought to myself, every time I see someone fat, or every time I see someone unfit, or every time I see someone who's you know, in a certain way, they are probably the, the cumulative effects of or the amount of their yes and no choices. So yes, I'll have one more cupcake. Uh, no, I won't go running with you today because it's raining. Um, yes, I'll stay in bed. And it, can, and it can swing both ways, I guess. It can be good yes choices or bad yes choices. Um, you know, we quite often say on here, you know, just be a good human and don't do heroin, things like that, you know. But I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that's a little bit of a reductionist theory, given that there's so many choices out there for us that we're, we're, we almost have choice fatigue. And I think sometimes our choices perhaps get taken away from us because we just sort of get dragged into a, a habit, a way of thinking about things and then just doing it. So we'd love to talk to you today about yes and no choices. That's great. I, As you know, I gave a TED Talk on this topic. I wrote a book about this. I guess it is my claim to fame. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, though, that there, there probably is no original thought. If someone like myself, who's you know far less intelligent than, than yourself, Barry, can just be walking along going, huh, you don't, you don't know that. Well, I don't. I mean, I'm, a, I'm just trying That's to... That's a limiting belief if I've ever heard one. It's called benevolent <laughs> manipulation, Barry. <laughs> I'm a psychologist. There are no tricks that I will not be aware of. 
tell us about your thoughts, Barry, on that. You know, what is choice? Well, so that's, of course, as I'm sure you know, a complicated question. There is, There are views that really choice is an illusion, that we are the product of, you know, our genes and our past experience. And so anytime, anytime we seem to have options, the option that we'll actually choose has largely been determined by our past experience. So it feels as though we are choosing the burger rather than the chicken. But in fact, it's this whole history that we bring to the restaurant that gets us to choose the burger rather than the chicken. To me, this is a philosopher's issue. It's not a, an issue that should concern the re- ordinary people. It feels as though when we sit down and look at the menu, we are free to choose whatever we want. And there are many, 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 many options from which to choose. And so you could argue that life is just one damn choice after another, at least in rich democratic societies like yours and mine. Are we then saying so, that there's no free will? I don't, I don't have a position on this. It seems to me we live as if, as if there's free will. We live in countries that assume that there's free will. The entire criminal justice system in your country and in mine is predicated on the notion that people are freely choosing to transgress or not, except for the occasional person who's clearly, you know, disturbed in some way. The sort of default assumption is that when you do something right, you get credit for it. And when you do something wrong, you get blamed for it. And sometimes that blame blame lands you in jail. So, you know, whether that is ultimately an illusion or not, is not so interesting to me. Every society, every democratic society presumes that we are choosing freely and thus should be held responsible for the choices that we make. Yeah. Are there people that exist in our community, a society that don't have choice? The example might be child abuse victims. Well, child abuse victims certainly are not choosing to be abused and arguably people who abuse children may feel compelled. Now, that doesn't excuse them, but it might influence what you do with them when you you find them. Mm. Drug addicts, having become drug addicts, arguably is the result of a series of choices that they made. Once they're addicted, it's not clear to me that it's terribly productive to think of each new dose as a product of free choice. You know, that's not going to you know, shaking a finger and blaming people for taking another shot of heroin is not going to get them off heroin. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've. I mean, this is so fascinating for me, and I guess we've had a lot of psychologists on Barry recently, and in particular, um, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. I think Mumta Saha was another one we had who was really interesting too. Trent, you know, they came with a wealth of experience, but I don't think we've ever had anyone on yeah. quite like you. Barry, with the, the huge amount of depth in, into this topic. And I, we've done a mind map up and I'm just looking at it and I'm completely overwhelmed with choice of what to talk about, about choice, to be fair. I, I guess right from the start, <laughs> yeah, I know it's just ironic. Trent, I was thinking right from the start, we just go with what is choice, like actually explaining and breaking down what is choice for us, Barry. Uh- you know, again, I think we, we don't want to over-intellectualize it or, or make it more complex than it is. When there is more than one path, 
and you are not in sort of desperate circumstances, either desperate because of something about your internal machinery, like addiction, or desperate because your family is starving and you need to find a way to feed them, then when when there's more than one option and you're not desperate, whatever option you end up with is the product of your choice. Now, that characterizes most people living in democratic societies most of the time. Now, it should also be said that you probably don't think when you get up in the morning that you are choosing to brush your teeth, right? I mean, do you give a moment's thought? It's a complete habit. So, you know, you might imagine that you, if you want to be a radically free person, every morning when you get up, you say, well, should I brush my teeth or shouldn't I? How do I feel this morning? And you might say, should I pee or shouldn't I? How do I feel this morning? And so, you know, there are all these totally mundane things that we do that we could choose not to do, but they occupy zero of our cognitive bandwidth, and they're just habits. And, and you know, one of the things I suggest, at least in the world we live in now, is that if it wasn't for a whole bunch of habits that get us through the day, we'd all be paralyzed perpetually. So most of the time, it doesn't feel like we're making choices. It feels like we're putting one foot in front of the other and doing whatever we always do. And and that's a kind of salvation in a world of hyper-choice, which is the world we live in. Barry, you, um, you gave a really interesting and detailed TED Talk on the paradox of choice. So can you explain to the audience a little bit about that? And obviously they can, they can go to watching the, the TED Talk. In fact, from what I understand, one of the original TED Talks of, uh, of all time, where you're rather well-dressed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the paradox of choice for us? Sure. So, so the, the argument I make in that talk, and I wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice that tells the story in more detail, um, is that in, in societies like ours, there's a kind of assumption, I call it a kind of syllogism, that the more freedom people have, the better off they are. Almost everybody in democratic societies accepts that. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. Almost everybody in democratic societies accepts that too. Therefore, the more choice people have, the better off they are. And what I try to suggest in my talk is that while that is in general true, there is a downside to having all of this choice. And the paradox is that when the choice set is large enough and the choices we face come at us fast enough, instead of being liberated by all these options, we're paralyzed. We go to the restaurant and there are 40 items on the menu and we can't decide what to order. We go to the clothing store and there are a hundred different styles of jeans and we walk out with no jeans. Instead of being liberated, we can't pull the trigger. You go to college after high school and, and you are free to take whatever you want, ever course you want and you discover there are hundreds of courses available to incoming students and you can't figure out which ones are the right ones for you. So the argument I make is that one, too many options paralyzes us and two, if we overcome paralysis and choose, we end up feeling disappointed by with what we've chosen because it's so easy to imagine that one of the alternatives would have been better. So that's the whole story. And, 
you know, it seems to me obvious once somebody says it, but until somebody said it, namely me, it wasn't obvious to people. I've gotten, I don't know, thousands of uh, emails since that talk, which is 20, almost 20 years ago, saying, oh, I'm so happy you gave that talk. I thought I was the only person who was suffering. <laughs> so it was not obvious to people. And it turns out it's become more obvious to people, thanks, I guess, at least in small measure to the influence that my talk and the book has had. So what's the alternative? Is it Was it better when we had less choice? I mean, you put a cartoon up during that presentation, you know, things were better when they were worse, when you had less choice. Is that the alternative or is this purely a psychological observation or is it partly political as well like you know well i mean there are political overtones certainly but but i'm not making an argument about you know so one view is listen freedom is really important freedom is so important that even if people suffer because they have too much of it it's a price worth paying some people would argue that you know and anytime you you narrow the options that individuals have even if you're making them better off, you are sacrificing the highest good in society, which is complete freedom. I mean, I don't agree with that view, but it's not, it's not a ridiculous view, uh, and very sensible people hold it. What I'm focused on is the psychology. And yes, what I'm suggesting is that people were better off when there were fewer options. Now, that does not mean that we all want to live in North Korea. So fewer options doesn't mean no options. Fewer options doesn't mean that the state or your parents or somebody is telling you what to do. Yes. So one of the things I've noticed with um, some world leaders is that they – like Barack Obama used to wear the same clothes every day. No. What he did is he had a rack of suits and a rack of shirts and he just went through the rack. So he had like one – like seven suits – so he wore a different suit every day, and then he started again the following Monday. And he was interviewed about this by a journalist who asked, how come you're so rigid about what you wear? And Obama said to him, have you got any idea how many decisions I make in a day? You think I want to spend my time deciding what to wear? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, duh. <laughs> no, I don't want you thinking about what you're going to wear. So he didn't quite wear the same suit every day, but he certainly took what should I wear off the table. Yeah, that is so fascinating, isn't it? And and I, I wonder then if that's a good reason why, say, private schools, for instance, have a uniform, why perhaps, you know, Trent and I have a, have a certain uniform that we wear for work. It makes life easier. And, um, you know, the, the Navy here in Australia have a um, uniform as well, Trent. They wear cams. I mean, why are they wearing cams? They're on a giant bloody ship. Well, it's interesting. I think there are a couple of reasons why private schools have uniforms. One of them, no doubt, I, I doubt that the choice problem has much to do with it since private schools have been issuing uniforms for a long, long time before anyone was paying any attention to the choice problem. They want to reduce status competition among students uh, and have students focused on other things instead of what they look like. It turns out it's a losing effort because even with uniforms, kids manage to find a way to individuate themselves just barely within within the rules. You know, they'll do something or other that's within the rules that makes them look different from everybody else. 
I remember seeing these young soldiers back when the new generation of soldiers came into the army and we were wearing a uniform that people would individualise by trying to have different haircuts. And the interesting thing about that is they were... Yep. They all had the same individualised haircuts, so they all looked like carbon copies of each other anyway, all trying to be, all trying to be <laughs> radical. So they had these radical haircuts, but they were all... They were all being so individual that they looked like the same. It's funny you say that. There were, at the college where I taught, there was always a minority of students who wanted to be countercultural, counter normative. They tended not to live in the dormitories, they lived off campus in apartments. They hung out with one another. Even when nobody was smoking, they were smoking and stuff like that. So they were going to make sure that everyone knew that they were different from the run of the mill students. And it's exactly as you described. They all looked exactly like each other. You know, always wearing nothing but black with these heavy boots. And they still become a tribe. <laughs> they, they totally become a tribe. And they become more of a tribe. You know, it's easier to pick them out than it is to pick out the rest of the students. You know, there are a lot of tribes on a campus. But these mm. people really stood out. They were so different from everyone else and so like each other. Barry, you've said previously that uh, freedom of choice is actually making us miserable. Is the world more miserable today because of more choices and technology, you know, the, the next couple of generations coming through than it was when you first said that back in 2005? And if so, why? And how, do, how would you quantify that? Well, there is a lot of research on, um, on hap- happiness or well-being that asks questions exactly like the one you just asked. How does it vary from one society to another? And how has it varied over time? And I think on average, the world is happier than it used to be. And I I may have said choice makes us miserable. In context, what I was saying was too much choice makes us miserable. Uh So it was not an argument that we take choice away. It was an argument that we shouldn't assume that by adding options, we are automatically improving people's lives because we probably aren't. So I think that the answer to the question, are, are societies getting happy or not, is that it depends on the society, you know? And the same thing is true with technology. Um, people didn't worry about fear of missing out, what we call FOMO. I don't know if that's a... You have FOMO in, even in Australia? It's, it's, it's crossed all the... Not me and, and probably my generation that much, but... Uh, but Younger generation. It's, it, it certainly is around, yeah, right. It's around. <laughs> so, so why does this happen? Well, you're less likely to fear what you're missing if you don't know what you're missing. But thanks to social media, the sense we have is that we can know what's going on everywhere. And the result is that, you know, what in my experience, not me and not even my children, but my grandchildren, is that they are very reluctant to make a commitment about what they're going to do on Friday night because something better might come along. And by the time they finally given up on there being something better, there's like no time to plan anything. So all they do is hang out with one another, assure that somewhere friends of theirs are having a much better time than they are. And uh, I think this is really, you know, one thing we know is that the incidence of, of depression and anxiety has never been as high as it is now. And this is true, I think, pretty much across the globe. Young people are suffering 
from depression and anxiety, even as the societies they live in get richer and the uh, options they have grow. And it does not seem to me that that's an accident. We're doing what we think is better for them. They are insisting that we do what is better for them and they are suffering. And it's a serious problem. I just read a book that hasn't been published yet about college experience in the U.S. The single most identified problem on the part of students and faculty is mental health. Student mental health is the number one issue on students' minds. Let me assure you, 20 years ago, that was not remotely true. Mm. Kids are damaged. They come in damaged and college doesn't help them. Yeah. Uh, social media is the big change in that. In I th- well, social media. One hundred percent. I think it may be a, a big piece of the problem, but I think social media, without affluence, is like you know, it's like a it's like a bow without an arrow. Social media sets the table, but you need to have the resources to take advantage of what's on the table. So the combination of growing affluence in certain sectors of society. And the availability of information about all the things you might be doing with that affluence really are a double whammy. You know, going to Catholic school and having to wear a uniform and having to take a set curriculum, as stultifying as that felt to people who did it, it turned out, I'm guessing, it may have been better for the mental health of the students Mm -hmm. than the free-for-all that they get now. Who would, yeah. who would have guessed it? Barry, I wanted to ask you a question which I thought uh, thought about earlier this morning. And I believe that as a leader, you should have a leadership narrative. And we teach this uh, on the Hindsight Adaptive Leadership course. And we speak about having a leadership narrative and understanding what your values are and the type of leader that you are. And I always said to my team or my organization as a leader, choose your attitude, Right. And it seems to me that the world is divided into two types of people, and that's optimists and pessimists. And, you know, optimists feel that they have control over their life, even in tough times, that they're certain that there are happier days ahead. And pessimists tend to blame others for what happens in their life and in their world and in their organization. So do you think people have choice to choose their attitude or are they led to that point as a result of a series of events in their life? I think it's much more likely the latter than the former. This sort of generalized approach to life is almost certainly something that gets built in the way a building does, brick by brick. And so, you know, you reach adulthood and you're a relatively fully formed person, and you can't simply snap your fingers and decide that tomorrow you're going to start being optimistic. You know, you really need to peel away what it was that's, that gave you one orientation to life and try to reconstruct that orientation or transform it into another one. So I don't, you know, it's nice to think that we can choose paths that lead to mental health, but you know, you can choose to want to walk on those paths, but then it's going to take a lot of hard work to undo bad habits and create better ones. Not only habits of be of acting, but also habits of thinking. You know, there are people who can find the cloud in every silver lining, and there are people who can find the silver lining in every cloud. And you're not just going to snap your fingers and go from being one kind of person to being the other. It takes 
practice. A lot of psychotherapy, cognitive therapy in particular, is really focused on getting people to change their habits of thinking with the expectation that if you start thinking differently, you'll start acting differently. But it's not lack of insight. Barry, if Marcus Aurelius had Instagram, would he have been a stoic? I think he probably would have been sitting in the couch in the basement uh, den, picking his nose and wondering what he was missing. If you had some advice for a young, you know, college student, university student about being able to pick uh, their way through life, what advice would you give them with regards to social media and with regards to study and reflection and perhaps stoicism itself? Well, I don't know that I have a view about stoicism in particular, but I think the... And I don't, know, I don't know how to give this advice in a way where it would actually matter because in my experience, young people think the problems I'm... They, they don't have the problems I'm talking about. They think that when I talk about the choice problem, it applies to old people like me, but young people like them who are the masters of the digital world have no problem. And once in a while, somebody will say that when I give a talk. And I say, yeah, I, th- I, see, I get your point. That must explain why every college and university in the United States is bursting at the seams with people like you knocking on the door to get psychotherapy because you guys are doing such a good job living your life that you don't have a problem. So I don't know that anything I have to say would be persuasive. I think social media are toxic and, you know, I think people should not use them. It's hard to imagine me saying that in a way that would influence people, right? You can't even get people to get vaccine. How are you going to get them to go off social media? So so I'm not optimistic about how to make that change. I think the upside is, is really minimal and the downside is substantial. Trent and I have this, um, this same realization that, that, you're, that you have and we need to meet our audience where they are and our audience are all there on Instagram and Facebook but I find even I, know. I find myself someone who practices a certain degree of stoicism tries to be reflective. You know, I get dragged down the rabbit hole as well, and I get depressed when I when I start. And I understand how habits are formed, and I know there's two hundred thousand years of evolution working against me because I hear a ping, I get a dopamine hit, I reach for the Instagram, I go to look at the comment, and I feel either validated or or vilified, and so the cycle friggin' continues. And for me to jump onto Instagram, and I do do this, and Trent will attest to this, I jump on there and say, hey, I'm having a detox weekend, and I'm telling you, well, on Instagram, that I'm not going to be using Instagram. Oh, the irony of that. You know, I, I actually <laughs> would trade in my podcast, trade in all the books that we've, you know, we've, you know, that I've written. I wouldn't trade in our business, Trent. It's okay. But I would trade in all of that to not be on Instagram. But I wonder then how we would get our message across to save people from from the very thing that we're we're talking on, the very platform we're using. No, 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 no. I, I hear you. It's a real problem. You know, it's interesting. This is very far afield, but I'll bring it back. Stuff continues to come come out about some of the horrors of the Trump administration. And one of the questions that people are asking is why the folks who were so close to him, you know, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all these people, 
why they didn't quit when it was obvious to them how how dangerous he was. And one of the counter-arguments is that they thought that if they quit, they'd re- be replaced by somebody who would offer no resistance at all. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And at least they could offer a little bit of resistance and, and try to slow the train rather than completely redirecting it. And, uh, and they had a responsibility to the country to do that. That's a very self-serving kind of rationalization. It might be true in some cases, but, but it's exactly the same problem. You're in this toxic environment, and the only way to change it is by staying in it. So you're in this toxic Instagram environment, and you want to get people off it, but the only way to get people off it is by being on it. And plus, you want people listening to the podcast, and this is the medium that uh, you need to be uh, active on for anyone to know that you even exist. So it's a really, really hard problem, and I don't know how to solve it. Yeah, I mean, you can do what you think is the right thing and hope that people will find you, but that takes a lot of patience. Barry, you said previously that you think that we're actually happier despite all of that, that we're actually happier. But are we losing our wisdom? I mean, you've, you've had a TED Talk around wisdom but are we losing that now faster than we have before? Are we less critical, and by that I mean critical analysis, than we were previously? Well, I think we are losing it, but I don't think it's because we are less... I mean, we may be less critical because we have less time to reflect. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a new set of options coming at you before you've even processed this set of options. And so... The idea that there might be something that requires careful thought and careful reflection is just inconsistent with the pace of modern life, at least for young people. But I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is that we have so lost confidence in the character of the people who lead our institutions that we think the only way we can get them to do the right thing is either by giving them a set of rules they have to follow, or by dangling uh, carrots that will entice them to do the, the right thing. So we don't trust people's judgment because we don't trust their intentions. We've become quite cynical about the people who lead schools, military, government, companies, you name it. And so we don't expect them to do the right thing unless we force them to do the right thing with rigid rules or, um, or uh, in, you know, irresistible incentives. And, you know, this is the way the military, at least in the U.S., operates. The, the set of rules that, that uh, military have to follow is, is, is longer than their term in the service. And the idea is to take discretion away from them in virtually every situation they find but then they actually go into combat and the situations are not like neat 
mirror images of what they've of what they prepared for so every situation they encounter requires them to use judgment and they don't have any judgment because they've never been given the opportunity to develop it so true so i think that's the bigger problem than just uh choice 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 but shouldn't choice more choices lead to greater wisdom because that's giving you experience which as you've said before requires time permission to make those mistakes when making choice and having mentors or coaches in choice, right? That's all true. It should lead to greater wisdom. It should lead to greater wisdom. But um, so my collaborator, a guy named Ken Sharp and I, we wrote a book about this. We divide wisdom into two components. One of them we call skill, moral skill. That is whatever it takes to figure out the right thing to do. And the other we call moral will, which is the desire to do the right thing. So you could be a person of the best will, but don't lack the skill. And so, you know, you're like a bull in a china shop. You always try to make things better, but you almost always make them worse. And as you walk out with your tail between your legs, people say, oh, he meant well. So this is somebody with good will, but no skill. The alternative is you're full of skill, but instead of using it to make society better or your neighbor better, you use it to manipulate people to serve your aims rather than theirs. We call those toxic leaders when... To- when absolutely, the, yeah, they're right, toxic right. leaders. That's, um, that's you know, when they they're roll sort into of that. Machiavellian in their approach. Indeed. The question is, how do you manipulate people so that they'll do what you want, whether or not it's in their interest? So you need both. And, uh, no. uh, we don't. I don't know where we teach character. We sure as hell don't teach it in school. Maybe we rely, I I guess we rely on families to teach character and maybe, um, you know, institutions like the military teach character. But for the most part, you know, character in liberal societies is almost a dirty word because when you talk about someone's character, you're implying that some ways of being in the world are better than others and should not simply be a matter of choice. So it's challenging to argue that we need character education in a society where you can't get people to agree on what the character education should consist of. Well, we teach character uh, at hindsight as a leader. So a leader's characteristics. Well, I mean, I think there are places, pockets, where you can do that. Mm. And everyone has signed on. You know, this is not all of society. This is a segment of society. This is what we stand for. And damn it, if you don't stand for it, we don't want you. And character is what you do when no one's watching. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's absolutely right. Character is what you do when no one is watching. But it turns out that you don't have to scratch very deep to discover there's very little agreement among people about what we should be doing when nobody's watching. And we kind of largely given up in the U.S. You know, I think in the military, you can get away with saying, listen, this is this is how we do things in the military, because when people join the military, they're signing on for something like that. But I don't think that's true in general. You sure as hell can't get university students to sign on to a code of conduct. I mean, they'll look at you like you lost your mind. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that we've noticed, Trent and I, around leadership is we quite often hear organisations say, hey, what we want from our leaders now is to bring your authentic self to work. But I I tell you now, if I was to bring my authentic self to any job, I'd probably be fired because my humour is dark, 
I grapple with my biases quite often. I say things which I know are wrong and that shouldn't be said, and then I go back and have to apologise for it. My authentic self is deeply bloody flawed, to be fair. (laughs) So when we joined the army, Trent and I, you hid injuries. You didn't say what was on your mind. You manipulated the psychological assessments because you know what they were looking for. Now kids go to join the military and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my... My dad was an asshole. My mum left. I've got, you know, stress and anxiety. I've, you know, I've got this injury. And they wonder why they get knocked back. And yet often, time and time again, the army's like, you know, we want you to be authentic and come and tell us exactly what you want. But we can't find anyone to join anymore. (laughs) You know, I think that uh, suggesting that what you want is for people to bring their authentic selves is essentially bailing out on the problem. You want people to bring their authentic selves when they have the kind of authentic selves that are worth having, and not everyone does. Some people's authentic selves are monstrous, and the only thing that enables them to live in civilization is that they suppress it. You know, it's not just telling bad jokes and being uh, politically incorrect, which is, I gather, your problem, Bram. You know, people have inclinations that are much worse than that. You don't want you want to create good, authentic selves. And then you can say, listen, we've done such a good job creating people of high character that we invite all of you to join our organization and bring your full, authentic self to it because we have such respect for that self. But that's certainly not the world I live in, and I doubt it's the world you live in either. I think you have nailed that, Barry. And I think you have nailed that because... We want you to come and we want you to know the game. And then when you get inside the game, we're going to create what we need from you. But your authentic self's probably not good enough to get in, to be fair. And I think that that is honestly true for most of society. Most of our authentic selves are deeply flawed. We're grappling with biases. If we just came to work and we were authentic, we'd be hit with racism, sexism. There'd be all sorts of ism charges going on. But then what happens is slowly leaders are able to uh, lead and build the teams that they need. Um, and sometimes that those biases, if we understand those biases exist, sometimes they can be part of that rich fabric and culture of the team and make the team more diverse when they're not biases that are going to hurt someone, kill someone, destroy someone. We're just different. We're all different. But what we want is we want you to be authentic and the same. Yes, people are different. What we want is organizations can tolerate difference within limits. And you have to, as the leader of an organization, be clear about what those limits are. You know, there are certain core characteristics that everyone in my organization has to have, say, right? If I'm running a scientific laboratory, everybody has to be completely honest. The one thing, you can be lazy or ambitious, You can have weak quantitative skills or strong quantitative skills. These are things that can be worked around by putting teams together where I compensate for your weakness and you compensate for mine. But what we can't uh, tolerate is a collection of people, some of whom are dishonest, because the whole enterprise depends on truthfulness. And so that's not, you can't bring that authentic self into my laboratory because it'll destroy the laboratory. So either you have to change or I got to weed you out. 
and I'm just choosing one example because of it's one I'm familiar with. In the military, it might be something else. You know, patriotism, loyalty to fellow soldiers, whatever it is, there's going to be some set of core characteristics that you simply cannot accept deviation from. And then once that's been satisfied, you get to be you and I get to be me and Trent gets to be him and we enjoy one hour of the variation. But there can't be infinite variation. And I, and I think leaders avoid taking a position about what those core characteristics are, you know, because they're, it's likely once they, they come up with a list, somebody's going to disagree and there'll be a whole argument. Why do you mean this is a core characteristic of being in the military? Who said? There can be good soldiers who don't have this characteristic, blah, 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 and you end up fighting about your definition of what all members of the military need to have in common. Victor Frankl says that in between stimulus and response is a space and that in that space is our choice. And I guess yep. quite often, you know, choosing not A, so your A is your initial response to something. And by choosing not A, you're then able to, to plot another path. Do you think that is at the core of our yes and no choices is just to take a moment when you're about to make a choice and perhaps to think about what Victor Frankl says with regards to stimulus and response and then taking control? Yes, but I want to, I'm quite familiar with that. Frankl gave a fantastic talk that I show in my classes at the end of the semester about that makes exactly this point. Here's what I think he underappreciates. It's not fair to imagine that we are really free to choose A or B. We bring to this situation a whole history that's really nudging us or pushing us toward A or nudging or pushing us toward B. And so acting as if we have this sort of radical freedom to choose the right thing over the wrong thing at a particular moment in our lives, ignoring how we got to this moment, puts way too much burden on us as individuals. Um, you have to try to constru- structure the environment so that it is easier for people to choose the right path and a little harder for them to choose the wrong path, even if you don't require them to choose the right path. So I'll, I'll just give you one trivial example. In the United States, when you renew a driver's license, you're asked if you want to be an organ donor. And um, when you poll people, 98% approve of organ donation. There are a handful of people who, for religious reasons, oppose it, but almost everyone thinks organ donation is a good thing. 26% of people are actually organ donors. In other words, one in four people who think it's a good idea are organ donors. And the way it works in the U.S. is that when you renew your driver's license, if you are, want to be an organ donor, you have to check a box, tick a box and sign a form. If you reverse it so that you are an organ donor, if you do nothing, but if you don't want to be an organ donor, you have to tick a box and sign a form you more than triple the number of organ donors. So if the default is that you are an organ donor, you get 75-78% organ donors. And in countries in Europe that do it that way, characteristically, 80 to 99% of citizens are organ donors. And the only difference is whether checking the box says, yes, I want to be, or checking the box says, no, I don't want to be. So 
if you know that people think organ donation is a good idea, why not make it easy for them to follow that path and a little tiny bit harder for them not to be organ donors, although they are free to choose not to be. And so it seems to me what we need to be thinking about is how we structure the choice environment so that we make it easier for people to make good decisions and harder for them to make bad ones without compelling them to make good decisions. And we pay not enough attention to what some people call the architecture of choice, acting as if as free agents, we have the options laid out in front of us and we are free to choose among them equally. So that's what I think. I think that's what Frankel underappreciates, that he, he does not come to this moment of choosing A versus B as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate. He comes with a whole set of baggage that's going to be pushing him in one direction or the other, and we need to pay attention to what that baggage looks like. I get what you're saying in this space. My worry when people hear what you say in response to Victor, and that is that we come with that baggage. Yes, we do. I just worry that those that don't reflect on that comment uh, well enough may choose to abdicate the responsibility of those choices or the outcomes of those choices by saying, hey, it's not my fault. I come with baggage into this choice. And so when you are a deeply reflective individual and you do reflect and grow and choose to grow and, and remain on a, on a life journey, which I think all successful people do. Like, you know, Bram's and my experience now is that every successful person we've spoken to has this passion for changing and improving the world and also being on a life journey, right? And so I worry that when people listen to what you say about bringing baggage to, to a choice, that they then abdicate their responsibility to the effects of those choices. Is that a risk? No, no, it's a real worry. It's a weird, you know, my, uh, my genes made me do it. My abusive parents made me do right. it. My miserable second grade teacher made me do it. The bully in the fifth grade maybe. I mean, there are lots and lots of ways to abdicate responsibility, and it is a problem. On the other hand, I, I also think we shouldn't have people beating themselves up when they face situations where success is almost impossible because of what they bring to the situation. You know, you go to a horrible school in, in, in the inner city in the U.S., and you get a scholarship to an extremely selective university. You barely had a high school education because of the quality of the school you graduated from. And then you're taking calculus as a freshman, and you have no clue what's going on. It's really not right for you to think, I am now an autonomous agent, free to choose, and if I can't handle calculus, it's all on me. It's just not accurate. It may be true of some people in some settings, you know, they're just blowing it off and you basically want to kick them in the ass and throw them the hell out of school. But it isn't true of other people. And the question is, how do you build resources that enable them to make the good decision, which they are completely unable to make at the start because they haven't been properly prepared and I have a feeling that you often find, you may often find this in the military. You assume a certain amount of character education that went into these ki kids as they grew up, and you build on it. 
And if that character education wasn't there, there's nothing for you to build on. Thank you for being a, a guest on the, the Warrior You podcast. It's such an interesting, you know, it's an interesting topic. It's so deep. And I, I, I really feel like we've just, you know, scratched the surface on on choices and yes and no choices and how they work. And it makes me fearful for society when I talk to you and think about walking down that aisle in, in Woolworths or, you know, the supermarket and seeing the myriad of choice we have and being frozen in that moment. And the fact of the matter is that in some small part, capitalism is to play in that and also the psychology behind what people want us to think. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to take your advice on board with regards to, to the Instagram and, and social media Trent and I will be, will be staying on that, but we'll be trying to show people the dangers of spending their lives inside the virtual reality as opposed to walking in, you know, in the open forests and seeing, seeing the trees, seeing life, seeing the environment and being at one with that yep. environment. So thank you, Barry. My pleasure. Great talking to both of you. Thanks very much for listening, gang. Our pre-recording producers are the amazing team at Talent and Truth. Special thanks to Sabine and Samantha. Caitlin Swallow as our post-production editor. Thanks to Jess Bunker for research. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. There's a weekly blog on the Warrior U website and a fortnightly newsletter that you can sign up to at hindsightleadership.com. That's all one word. Thank you for listening to the Warrior U podcast presented by Hindsight Leadership and Resilience. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.